if I told you about the newsletter, the writing, it's a scrape of all the headlines with links to the articles of all the top right wing stories. So you can just kind of understand the what the other side is seeing on Facebook, basically. I don't I don't pay attention to to him. I mean, I know other people do, but like well, that's, and that's, that's the only reason I have to, because I'm like, what are half of the my countrymen subscribing to, you know? So this, this actually, believe it or not, this will take us into Paramus. I, it, I, think, it, it I, think, I think it actually does. This kind of dovetails pretty nicely into what we're going to talk about. listening to quarantine comics and this week we're going to paramus new jersey no the city and oblivion the argentinian graphic novel by writer juan sasterain and the legendary illustrator alberto breccia ah well i have been there as well as argentina but i kind of prefer the new jersey version is that because the city and oblivion is an absurdist caper featuring political dissidents fighting their way through a war-torn city where a fascist regime makes people disappear paramus new jersey has a mall well paramus new jersey the city and oblivion is one of the most unusual graphic novels you'll read and if you try to read it literally you'll probably get a little lost and you do not want to be lost in paramus new jersey i mean the traffic on the turnpike is such a bitch In many ways, The City and Oblivion, a seven-year project written during and after the infamous Argentinian Dirty War, is both highly symbolic and heavily inspired by pulp adventures and spy thrillers. Fictionalized versions of the writer Borges, Ronald Reagan, and Frank Sinatra all make an appearance in this dark little madcap. And it totally works. Does it? Does it? Well, that's what we're going to argue about today. I'm Roman Segal. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we're two guys living in an empire of poop. And for our listeners, that's an explicit reference to the comic book. (laughs) And as a soon-to-be father of two, that is going to be my new reality. So, Roman, what did you think? I'm still making up my mind about this, man. I took this book on vacation. And I was like, I'm going to read this book and a bunch of other comic books on my vacation. And I just got stuck in it. I literally got stuck in the mud in this book and had to let go of it. And then on the drive back from our vacation road trip, it's like, okay, I'm going to read this in the backseat of the car. And I just kept avoiding it and avoiding it. And then probably TMI, but I had a couple of days before I got my second vaccine shot. And I was like, okay, I got to finish reading this like before like I am knocked the fuck out. And so I did. But typically when I read a book early, I, I do it on purpose so I can ruminate for three days on it. And I just didn't want to because I felt, Ryan, a little bit insecure that did I not fully get it? And I want to be clear, like I... I've been to Argentina. I know the history of the disappearances or the dirty war, as they call it. I I felt like I was supposed to be reading between the lines a little more than I did. And at some points, it was fun enough to read literally. So I just kind of did that. And I feel like I missed out on something. And so maybe I, I haven't let it breathe enough or I read it over the course of three days a little too fast versus. Or so is it that I'm not smart enough to understand this? I'm insecure about not feeling smart enough to understand this, or this book is trying too hard. <laughs> and I think the answer no. is yes to all of those. What, what about you, Ron? No, I don't think it's any of it. I, I I would say the answer is no to all of the above because- Welcome so to I, Quarantine Comics, where, <laughs> where we agree and disagree on the fundamental same point. So 
my familiarity with the Argentinian Dirty War is sort of relegated to whatever I learned and remembered in high school. I am certainly not an expert on it, but... Where, where did you go to high school? What, what state? California. Okay, man, they did not cover that shit in Alabama public schools. I read about it, I read about it in The Lonely Planet as the plane was descending in Buenos Aires and like the 15-page the history section. That's where I get most of my world history. <laughs> Listen, guys, we got to get our education somewhere, whether it's in The Lonely Planet as you're landing in a country or whether it's from your high school history teacher reading from a textbook because he's given up whatever it takes for you to get the information just get it or or um, by listening to a podcast about comic books well i'll tell you so so paramus i was a little bit thrown initially because i was reading it like literally and it kind of opens in that it, yeah. the, the very first page opens in that way with the title character paramus being kind of he's he's squirreled away with his fellow revolutionaries and the secret police come by and execute everybody and then paramus flees so that's a really cool opening sequence but then you know it actually very quickly shifts into symbolism what premise then does is that he sleeps with a prostitute literally named oblivion and when he wakes up he has forgotten everything including his guilt associated with running away from his fellow revolutionaries and his name and his name and get yeah and, and he even forgets his name and hence the name of the book the brand name on the mm. trench coat that he wears is paramus yes hence, that's not, his so, name his, yeah yeah no that's that's a great point his, his name is basically from the clothes that he manages to steal as he's as he's fleeing. But if you read the whole book in that way, you know, kind of understanding that it's mostly going to operate on the level of symbolism, I think you're going to be you're going to be fine. It's almost like when we reviewed The Inkle by Mobius and uh, No, uh, no, I actually disagree to that because to the lesson learned from reading The Inkle is don't take it too seriously, just go along for the ride. I think the mistake I made with this book, and I, I caught myself in it multiple times, I just couldn't change my reading style, is because the, I want to give this book an amazing compliment, like, the art is amazing. The The intrigue of the opening plot hmm. with the hints of symbolism, the, the prostitute's name being Oblivion, etc., doesn't remember his name. It's so intriguing and so intoxicating and so exotic that you want to just go along for the ride with it. And that's what I did. And next thing I know, I'm on like a country western set or yeah. <laughs> like an island of poop. And I'm like, what? How did I get here? <laughs> like, and that was the moment that I was like, ah, shit, symbolism happened and I wasn't paying attention. No, no, no. Let me, okay, let me, let me clarify. What I mean by comparing it to the Inkle isn't that, you know, yeah, you're right with the Inkle. It's just sort of go with the flow. It's like almost like a stoner sort of situation. Yeah, yeah. But with Paramus, like the Inkle, you kind of have to relearn how to read it. Right. Yes. It's not. Yeah. It's that's what I mean. So, so you're right. You read Paramus differently than the Inkle, but like both comic books, you don't read either. You know, as you would a conventional story, and so or a conventional comic, or a conventional or a, conven comic. Or a conventional comic, which is yeah. why I was so delighted by both comics, frankly. And so with Paramus, you're right. It's it's you you don't just go with. I mean, there's an extent to which you just kind of accept that things are going to happen. The weird things that happen happen for like no real reason. But you also kind of have to understand that when there's an interaction, when there's some sort of conflict, you know, one of the characters might be a stand-in or a symbol of a political conflict or a political idea let me give you an example so book two is called the soul of the city and that's where they're kind of going around trying to find the individuals who represent the soul of the city i mean right there it's i mean it's kind of blatantly not meant to be taken literally which is a pentagram by the way 
I actually I did not even I did not even see that. I didn't. Yeah, they draw they draw the yeah. I, I did the draw. Map. You're right. But there's that there's a, there's one. What is uh, that saying? <laughs> there's there's one episode where they kind of go to the zoo and all of these different zoo animals are try, vying to be the symbols of the country. But you've got this leering Ronald Reagan like figure hawking the the Amer- the, the bald eagle. You've got uh, the Indian elephant, the Indian elephant, Indian elephant. You've got, you've got the priest showing off a dove, which is actually really a pigeon, which itself says something. And so, you know, all of, you know, that, that moment just kind of operates under the auspices of symbolism. I mean, literally they're hunting for a symbol of the city. So I I think if you kind of accept that this isn't meant to be taken literally and, you know, the, the characters that you see or the, the, you know, or the, or the conflicts often represent something greater, you're going to enjoy it a lot more. And, you know, oftentimes I was able to kind of align the idea that Sosterin and Breccia were, were, was going for, even if I wasn't familiar with Argentinian history as much as I probably should be. You could, you could kind of figure out, because I think there are a lot of parallels with, with Paramus compared with, with what's happened, you know, recently in, in America. You know, I think the issue that made me insecure through my reading of it was the jumpy nature of the momentum because it's, it's split into four books and it's, you know, because I think it was published originally in magazines. So it's these nice short chapters. It's kind of like a Dan Brown book. Like I feel like I'm accomplishing something. Yeah. (laughs) There's so many tricks the book does. I hate to say this to dumb it down that I'm, I condition my reading style to be dumbed down and then there are these herky-jerky moments. And I, I've thought a little bit about this as we've been talking. There's two specific moments where it gets really herky-jerky on me that I couldn't go with the flow and, you know, loosely understand the symbolism. And those moments are towards the end of, I think, chapter one, where they're stuck in the movie studio. It gets a little weird. I'm like, wait, what's really going on? And the entire Island of Poop episode, which is, I think, all a book two. Oh, um, yeah. But, you know, believe it or not, the... The the fetch quest for the soul of the city and the teeth of the martyr of the city, which was basically like reading Ocean's Eleven in comic book form, like those are fun. Like, yeah, yeah, there's a bigger symbolic thing that I need to get, but I don't need to get. They hang out with Castro and, you know, all sorts of people like, you know, oddly enough, think- second second comic book in a week that featured Castro that I've read. There's a Captain America. But anyway, yeah, like, I don't know, man. I, I think that's what threw me off. And maybe it's. Had I been reading it in magazine form, like a mad magazine every week, adventure of the week style, maybe I would have appreciated this more. Well, I think so. Sometimes the symbology is very, very obvious. Like in the last episode or the last chapter, you mentioned they're on this quest uh, for teeth to restore the smile of this famed Argentinian uh, singer Singer. who's died and they have his skull and the skull is missing his teeth. Restoring his smile, okay, kind of like healing Argentina after the horrors of the of the dirty war. So it's pretty broad. I think one of the reasons sometimes it gets a little bit confusing is that not everything is meant to be a symbol. Some of the stuff is just sort of like weird and 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 madcap. And you know, like they land in a Western movie set in the earlier chapter. Why is it a Western movie set? I don't really know. So I think sometimes this book, you know, there's so much odd stuff that happens and some of it is explicitly, it's very obvious that this is meant to symbolize, you know, restoration of, of Argentina's spirit and other stuff is just kind of weird for the sake of being weird. And it's kind of hard to untangle the two. But I think again, I'll come back to 
I think this book is meant to be read the way it was published. And it's literally, even as the painful phone book that it is, I think it's every couple of days you pick it up and read one or two chapters. And then you walk yeah. away from it and you think about it and you read it versus what we did. And again, maybe you're a better reader than I am, but like I read it in three sittings. I, I binged it effectively. And as a result, either things went over my head or I got stuck in the momentum or the mud with it. Right. There was something. And I get, I think about like, this is almost like, oh, I'm going to entertain you with this chapter, but the next one, some subversive history shit I'm going to lay on you. You could almost do a podcast where you read like two chapters of of this book, yeah, <laughs> like a week and talk about it. This could I, be a I, college well, course. I, I think you are spot on. And, and, you know, maybe it's better to read it like one chapter at a time and just let it breathe. And I, I do see what you mean about the, the jerkiness, because that's definitely something I noticed as well. I, you know, there's one sequence where uh, they rescue this this foreign pilot called the enemy. And the enemy is basically this guy who serves as the boogeyman to that the uh, that the dictatorship sort of props up as the enemy of the people. And in, in one chapter, he's like, all right, guys, I'm leaving. I'm going to jump out of the plane. And he, it kind of seems like he jumps out of the plane. And then the next chapter, he's actually like back in the plane and everyone's acting like nothing happened. Like that sequence never took place. So I think that's probably maybe and an element. Later on, he's part of the crew. Later on, he's part of the gang for the rest of the book. I, I kind of think that might be an element of them. what happens when you make that stuff up as you go along. And, you know, also this happened kind of early in the book when it felt when I, I'm kind of wondering if Brecci and Sasterine were still sort of figuring out who they needed, now, who they didn't. Now, need. here's what happened. They wrote that chapter. And then two weeks later, the fan mail came. You're like, what'd you do? We loved Enemy. And they're like, well, let's make Enemy part of the team. <laughs> like, that it's helps a, with sales. It's a, it's a Jesse Pinkman uh, dilemma. Wait, did they? Was he not supposed to be a major character in the show? And then no, he's supposed to die him? at the end. He was supposed to die at the end of the first season. So I read. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, so yeah, enemy. I, I, you know, it's funny. He wasn't my, but and something I noticed the title character parameter, like the gang of three or four guys, along with like their Charlie's Angel kind of like Borscht guy or whatever his name is. By the end of the book, Paramus is just one of the gang. He's not even the title mm-hmm. character anymore. Like the Brutus guy, I can't remember his name. Starts with a C. Even enemy, enemy becomes a pretty big deal midway through. I mean, he's literally kind of a big deal down there, if you know what I mean. So. I mean, I wonder if Paramus, the character, is meant to be the lens through which you're supposed to be, you know, you know how like in those video games, you're just kind of like, oh, right. He has no identity, no identity. He's yeah, he's basically the lens through which you view the world because he doesn't really have he does a few things, but he doesn't really change. It's interesting. Everybody in this book has such crazy and I do want to talk about the art, but they've just got crazy, distinct features or expressions. And Paramus doesn't. He's stone faced. And he doesn't really have, he doesn't really talk much and he doesn't really do much. And so that kind of leads me to believe that he's meant to kind of almost represent that everyman character in a way. Yeah, I I can see that now. Yeah, that's the lens by through which we're looking at it. And you know what's, while almost every character is a character, there's something to be said about this batik art style that it's paint, drawn and painted in. Two color ink, right? I think charcoal and collage. It's really, it's. There's a hyper realism, man. There's such a hyper realism oh, to it. And yeah. it's almost disconcerting because there's times when you feel like I'm looking at photography. And maybe that's some of the collage, but it can't be with some of the painted faces that I see. And then, what, but then you go see someone like the character of Enemy or some of these like character villains or corporate fat cats that are just like these perverse looking clowns and it's made more disturbing because everything else looks so real. And that was such a jarring, powerful effect. It's expressionism, right? These deep shadows, everyone's 
facial features are distorted and their movements are exaggerated. And all of it is packed full of emotion. You can see the emotion of the characters that's driving their body movements, their twisted facial features. And I, you know, and that's consistent throughout the book. And even if you don't want to read the words, picking up Paramus and flipping through the pages and just getting immersed in this environment, it's a terrifying, but also kind of very funny place to be. That It's that blend of cartoony and horrific, which I don't but you see know, a lot it, either. It's, I, I would challenge anyone to do that, what you just said. Flip through it. Go get it from your library or convince your library to buy it for you, like I did, so then I can give it back to them and not have spent $70. Because it is a pricey book. But try flipping through it, and I challenge you to not want to understand what is going on and go read it. it, it and so that's where it being in a magazine... I don't know the format of what kind of magazine it was in, but imagine you're reading uh, The New Yorker or The Economist, and then 10 pages of this shows up. You would want to stop and read this for 10 pages. Because, again, the phone book has a lot of barriers to entry, but 10 pages in like a news magazine or a you know people magazine or something in Argentina during like a really shitty time, why wouldn't you read this? So I can... Because it pulls, you can't look at these images and not want to understand what what what's what's happening. Oh my god, what what the fuck? Like, and that, that's the kindest compliment. Like, I can't. It's like a car accident. You can't tear yourself away from. In a way, it is. I mean, it's actually a lot of these pages are both very chaotic, but also very very clear. I, I don't know understand how uh, Breccia is able to do it because he, I mean, it's it's almost like he just slops on ink. He uses a lot of negative, uh, negative space too. Kind of uses the whites to actually kind of give definition to what he's what he's drawing. And at the same time, the storytelling is actually very cinematic. Like I, you know, I, I really love those scenes that take place in like crowded bars or on the streets of Argentina, and um, you almost kind of feel like like you're there. And so, so I mean, Brecci is known for being very experimental with his art form. He doesn't he doesn't do one thing over and over. Well, that, again. That's what you were telling me before this episode. You were like. The- Every he has a lot of range, so it's not oh, just yeah. this. Like if I, I I've never read Brecci, I don't think so. I this is all I know him for. Well, his version of Dracula was recently published, and that one is full color, very abstracted, a very different vibe, but also sort of like a similar view of this decadent society falling apart. Very fascinated by. Uh, these fascist regimes. I won't tell you how he adds that to Dracula, but it's a really fascinating book. Oh, and there's no dialogue. So you, you'll be able to read that one super fast. It's actually very, very, it's almost, I know you like describing yeah, comics what are for primal. <laughs> yeah, but th- it's a very kind of primal feeling the way he kind of drags you into this hyper stylized world of, of Dracula, who's sort of like touring around the city as the t- city starts to tear itself apart. Very, very weird stuff. And then he also has like his other big comic is one called Mort Cinder about a guy who's constantly like resurrected. And that that material looks a lot like like Neil Adams or something like that. It, it, it has it's very kind of a, a little bit more conventionally illustrated with, you know, India ink, which you'd expect in a comic book. So the guy's got like just amazing, an amazing amount of range. So I want to ask uh, I want to ask a, a very pointed question. So there are four chapters in this book. Book one is the pilot of Oblivion, where it's where you meet the title character and he escapes on a plane and he lands on this weird ass movie set where there's some political symbology. Book two, the soul of the city, where they draw a pentagram and say there's like these effectively uh, seven horcruxes <laughs> like in Harry Potter that represent the soul of whatever. The, oh, what's the name of the city? It's not Buenos Aires. They name it something else. Uh, oh, I forgot. 
Yeah, Santa Maria. I mean, I don't know. Is that a real city or is that just supposed to mean some it's, Anyway. It's a real city in California. <laughs> of course it is. Where I hear the education on Argentina is quite good. Book three is they land on an island and there's a war about poop, which I think means something. And book four is a tooth for tooth, the Ocean's Eleven. Let's capture the teeth of the smile of Argentina, where they meet everyone from Frank Sinatra to Fidel Castro. Yeah. So. Which of these was your favorite? I can tell you actually which was my least favorite because... I guarantee uh, your least... I, 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 can I make a prediction? Yeah. Your favorite, because it is my least favorite, is the island of Guano. No, that was my least favorite. We were in agreement there, my friend. Well, holy... We need to end this podcast. I know, right? It's over. All right, all right. Oh, shit. I don't know that, man. I literally just figured that was... Okay. Well, I, I actually want to talk a little bit about... Because I was thinking about why did the island of Guano not work? I actually very much enjoyed Soul... Of, I, I really like Pilot of Oblivion. I love Soul of the City. I love the fourth book, Tooth for Tooth. The fetch quest, I think, is actually very, very effective in telling the sort of story that's sort of so rich in symbology because... You know, a fetch quest is very easy to understand, right? It's like you need to get there and there's get the thing, thing to, to get the thing to get the thing to get the thing. Doesn't yeah. matter, doesn't matter what what you need to get, why you need to get it, just you need to get it and these things are in your way. And so in a way that makes the story very 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 clear. The problem with the island of Guano is that it's too complex for this They're trying too hard. If, if, if yeah. my one slam on this book and it's it's literally maybe I was having a bad night when I read it, but Island of Guano was trying too hard. Yeah. And maybe it's something they were they were just and so maybe you, it's kind of like just skip island of guano <laughs> read book one two and four and you're good to go man yeah but i was wondering why the island of guano just didn't work for me they land on um on an island that that's sole industry is mining bird shit and uh, there's political turmoil that's happening there a bunch of different factions one represented by a circus you've got the invasion of the americans and then you've got the dictatorship that's holding the land and then of course our intrepid travelers land on that island and they kind of like stir things up and i think there's just too many moving parts it's almost like a serious political was thriller. it supposed to be sorry question was the island of guano supposed to be representative of the falklands i was that's yes i was thinking that i'm not sure i don't know but that i i, I definitely felt that because you have this dictatorship holding the land which would be argentina and then you have this invading army of gringos they call it which would be great britain and then you have the revolutionaries in argentina rebelling against the locals, the, yeah. the local the local government the and the local government saying no, no 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 team up with us and we can fight off the gringos and if you read the the end notes of paramus because normally you know i always kind of felt like Growing up, like the Falklands, you know, it was Great Britain trying to force itself onto the last um, failing land of an empire. By. The last failing yeah. of an empire. Yeah. Yeah. Onto, onto Argentina. And that is true. But you always kind of think of Argentina as sort of being, oh man, they were just trying to fight back against these invaders. But in a way, it was kind of like assholes fighting assholes, right? I mean, because the Argentinian <laughs> government was a dictator. Also, also, a rejected name of this podcast. <laughs> The Argentinian government was a dictatorship. And, you know, yeah, as, yeah. as as is mentioned in the end notes, they got involved against Great Britain as a way to kind of rally the local citizenry because they were having a problem with 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 internally. Yeah, internally. Yeah. And so that so it, it's actually a very <laughs> cynical reason why the Argentinian government was so happy to, to or I don't know, happy. But right and like, word, I but guess the, the only way you could write that in a magazine published in country even though it, the symbolism is so obvious, but is to wrap yourself in symbolism and satire. Yeah, yeah, and 
in a way, I mean, you know, I mean, as much as we're criticizing that chapter, we, we've honestly we, we were living in the shit. We weren't living in the literal shit that was happening in Argentina. And again, listeners, if you don't know, you might think Argentina is just a really nice country in Latin America with great grilled meats. It is a pleasant place to visit, and I would highly recommend it. But go read the ten pages of Lonely Planet history, or go to Wikipedia and read about the history of Argentina from the eighties to the two thousand to early two thousands, and yeah, to be writing this shit. Wow. I just, I mean, again, reading it in context, when this came out in pieces once a week in a magazine, I can only imagine now. Yeah. I, I just also want to add something about the guano. You because obviously. <laughs> let's you know, talk more about shit. Let's talk more about well, Let's talk shit some more. Symbolically speaking, it's an empire built on shit, right? So that's kind of <laughs> obvious. But I was you know, so, for this podcast, man. But I was talking, so I, I've been talking to my dad um, recently, just kind of like getting his history and stuff like that and talking about, you know, just, just to have a record. But we were talking, he was talking about how in Southern China, so we're Chinese American. So in Southern China, you know, at the, at the time, a lot of people were immigrating to the United States. A big reason was because there were a lot of clans. It was very clannish. There were a lot of warlords mm-hmm. and there was mm-hmm. a lot of slavery between the different Chinese clans. And one group, the Hakka, they were sent to, I don't know if like you said Argentina or South America, but they were enslaved and sent to like some island. Jamaica, to- maybe. But they were sent there to mine guano for fuel. So there's actually is a basis of guano being valuable as a, as as a fuel source. So I just my, thought my, that my, was... my mother in law is Hakka, and I am very curious about that now. Oh, really? She is. Yeah. I did not know that. That's born interesting. Born and raised in my... Jamaica. Born and raised in Jamaica. That's why I'm. Maybe. Curious. But your yeah. family does like to get into some shit. Is what I've learned. My family definitely does like to get into into some shit. You know, growing up, we did have a septic tank in the backyard instead of a. Normal. That's what happens when you live out in the country, guys. You, you got a you're septic tank. From, not a you're system. not even from Alabama. Look, I I, I don't want to. I, I I guess I'm coming down too hard on this book, and this is where my insecurity is. This book is doing more than I gave it credit for, and that's again something like I continue to be amazed that I'm I'm just learning now, maybe as an adult. And again, are we grew up reading weekly comics, right? We read these books as they were meant to be read. And it's fun to go back and read something in graphic novel. And that's now the dominant form where you can sit down and enjoy a nice story. But some of these works that are now collected, I think are really meant to be read as they were published. Like yeah. We, you know, I mean, we were talking about that with uh, Red Rocket 7, was it? You know, with, uh, with, with Luther, with Luther Arkwright. Luther with, Arkwright, yeah. And it's it's not even just publishing in size of page format, but it's, I mean, with this, it's literally, I almost feel like there should be like a one-page summary. Imagine this is happening in the world, kind of like when a documentary opens or a uh, historical fiction opens, and like, this is the context of what's happening in the world open scene right and and it's almost like somehow condition them the same way disney plus conditions you to watch one episode of winter soldier like falcon and winter soldier once a week versus binging it all at once like to to pace yourself and read this versus trying to read it in three days for a podcast when i first read it i wasn't sure how to read it and initially it was a little bit slow going because again i'm just trying to figure things out but as i you know kind of got used to the rhythms of this book and started to figure out, I think what Sasterine and Breccia were doing. I, it was just exhilarating to me because I, I realized, you know, I, I, there's some stuff that I would be able to tie back to the, 
to the conflict that was happening in Argentina at the time that they were creating this. And there's some stuff that I just wouldn't, that would just go completely over my head. But at the same time, I've just loved sort of the madcap nature of this. I love the fact that, you know, sometimes weird shit would just happen for the sake of it being weird shit. And sometimes it would genuinely be symbolic. And I, I kind of liked not knowing. I kind of liked being on that very uncertain ground. And, you know, it, it's not like it's it's unlike any comic I'd ever read before. And yeah. that was yes. what was so yes. fun for me because I get so tired of the same shit over and over again. Same shit over the same guano over <laughs> and over theme. again. Theme, yeah. And so reading this was really kind of like a breath of fresh air, not only in how the story was told, but visually how it was illustrated. It was just a world that. I'm glad that I'm not a part of because it feels like it is definitely an awful world in Paramus, but New Jersey. And it's, not and, the and, 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 it's and it was a real world. Like as, yeah. as fantastical as this genre fiction is, this was written in a very real thing that happened in our modern history. Do me a favor, flip to page ninety-eight. I want to correct an error. An error. We don't make errors, Roman. We're not allowed to cop to them. It's not a pentagram, my friend. It's a it's a star of David. Yeah. I mean, again, in a book that is like rife with symbolism, does that mean something? Like does it mean something? Does it mean something that you mistook the Star of David for a pentagram? Okay, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> whoa, whoa. No. Cut this. Cut this part. No. I mean, so sorry what I'm referring to, guys, is we said earlier there's a chapter where they're searching for the, the basically the personas of the soul of the city, the Horcrux quest, fetch quest. And uh, they draw a symbol over the map of Santa Maria, the city, I believe. And I thought it was a pentagram. And it's they draw two triangles. It's uh, overlapped on each other. It's the Star of David. And again, with a book as rife in symbolism, again, I'm not sure. Is there Jewish heritage to Argentina? I don't no. When they go to France, for instance, there's that whole thing about white nationalism in France. And it, it only shows up for a couple of pages and then he moves on to the next topic. So hmm. I can see Brecci and Sastering bringing up something like that for a little bit and then moving on. And that's the thing. They don't they don't tend to dwell on the symbols. They show something. Maybe it's a symbol. Maybe it's not. And then they move on to the next. Except for the island of poop chapter. Uh, you get stuck on the island of poop for a while. We're all stuck on the island of poop, though. So, yeah, as as. As cool as I feel for convincing the library to buy this so I didn't have to, I, I regret not owning this one now. This is a book. This is a, this is a nice thing. I, 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 I don't know if I said this on air, but uh, yeah, I do wonder if this could be a course. Like, could you teach a course on this? I, I could see it being, you know, yeah, definitely. Because there's like a lot of history and a lot of thought packed into each of these chapters. And again, I know I'm missing a lot of stuff. I'm picking up the broader strokes, but there's quite a bit that that's just going straight over my head because I don't have the education. But but in a way, you know, it's, it's it also kind of shows how, how personal this book is for both Brecci and Sastrain, who, you know, were two Argentinian writers. And, and, and it feels personal. This is sort of like, they're, I mean, they're looking back at this time with both anger and the sense of absurdity and what a strange mix of emotions that is can we can we talk about another one of my favorite moments in this book i completely forgot about it in the fetch quest for the teeth oh yes they're going after one of the final teeth and there's this sailor who's been around the world sir richard oh i love that chapter he's literally uh he's been a sailor in many ports and it's the reading of his will and something they think he's going to give away in his will is one of the teeth for the the skull of the smile of argentina right and they go around the room and they introduce every one of his sons 
<laughs> so he's like, okay, people, go around the room. Please, gentlemen, state your name and the date and place of birth. Richard Mac Alistair, Cardiff, 1947. Richard Dupont, Marseille, 1943. Richard Panikos, Athens, 1950. And basically, frame by frame, this goes on to India, to the Middle East, to, to the Cairo, to Samoa, to San Sebastian, to Bombay. It's a character drawing of someone from that country with the same first name of the man who fathered them. And it's like, oh, he fucked a girl in this country, in this port, in this year. I, I couldn't stop laughing. Laugh out loud, funny, man. The book always goes to places that you don't expect it to go. And which is another like just delight in reading it, even if you don't understand fully like what the plot is, which you probably won't because you're not meant to understand it fully. <laughs> Those individual scenes are just fantastic. And the other one I really like was the was Frank Sinatra's um, <laughs> contest. It's literally a dick measuring contest. Guys. It's literally a dick measuring contest. Yeah, Frank, Frank Sinatra appears. And, and yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. I mean, this book just surprises and delights over and over again. As dark as the subject matter is, just as a pure reading experience, it's just so much it's so much fun. I, I have to imagine this is like a Mad Magazine kind of experience to read this. A very dark Mad Magazine, but you're right. But I mean, you, you know, the, the, image, the images, the, the art kind of has that that sense of caricature and it almost looks like a political cartoon i mean it is in a way a political a, a political comic that runs on for 400 pages but it kind of has the same visual style where people you know like people might appear monstrous or just incredibly exaggerated and their features represent their the, their character within them yeah, what I was going to say is, I think one thing that does this book an injustice is the cover. So to paraphrase, to, to use the office cliche, judge don't judge a book by its cover. I don't think you can, because the cover of this phone book is these like evil-looking SS henchmen skulls driving a car. And and these are some of the, the villains in chapter one or book one or whatever. And so you think you're reading this book of spy intrigue of us versus them. And that's not what this book is about. And so I, I literally wonder if by changing the cover, it would have set a different expectation to the tone of this book. I don't know. I kind of liked it. They just look so cartoonish. And you know, the, the, man, it's, it's a, I'm sorry. The cover is stuff of nightmares. That's not cartoony, man. It's some scary ass shit. My, my daughter, I have a lot of comics and she now reads Calvin and Hobbes and Tiny Titans. And so when she sees comic books on daddy's bookshelf, she wants to open them and flip them open. And this was one because of the cover i had it face down all the time because i was afraid she was going to open it well i definitely feel it's terrifying but also in a kind of cartoonish way which as i kind of we mentioned earlier that's sort of emblematic of the book it's both it kind of revels in both the the absurd as well as the nightmarish and i i think that's a strength that's the strength of it so i enjoyed the cover Rumin, and that's that's our that's our weekly <laughs> disagreement why am I not surprised? That's if there's ever a conclusion for something for us to agree and disagree on at the same time. The cover was terrifying. I hated it. The cover was terrifying. I loved it. <laughs> well, Ramen, we've we've traveled to some dark places. You and I. Uh, are we going to another dark place next week? Well, we are going to New Jersey, my friend. Newark, oh God. New Jersey. <laughs> Even worse. Next week, we are going to Newark, New Jersey, of the Marvel Universe. And that is a literal saying because we are going to be reading the critically acclaimed superhero series and what I would argue, one of the best new superheroes created in the past few decades, Miss Marvel. Now you might be saying, hey, I watched Captain Marvel. Isn't that that movie where Alice, not Alison Brie, 
shit, what's the actress's name? Brie Larson. Yes. Brie Larson. Yeah. Uh, isn't that that movie where Brie Larson is like a badass super cop with awesome powers? Sure, she exists in the Marvel Universe. But this book is about Kamala Khan, a Pakistani-American girl who is a fangirl super fan of Captain Marvel and gets superpowers. And her superpowers are weird. And this is a book. It's a modern-day Peter Parker for the modern-day world that's just... Every time I read it, it's so much fun to read. This is the comic book I want my daughter to grow up and read. And and joining us for the episode is going to be my Pakistani-American new friend and collaborator, Lena Sharif. So, Miss Marvel, we're going to have a lot of fun with that one. In Newark, New Jersey. Does she ever go to Paramus, though, Robin? Only rich people from Greenwich, Connecticut go there to go to the Ikea, my friend. To the Ikea we will go.